0: So uh, when I was in fifth or sixth grade, Uh, my best friend's older brother he ran for school president okay so he was like in eighth grade or he's about to be in eighth grade and he ran for school president and his platform was was ran on one promise and one promise only his platform was he would get vending machines to the school okay and so this is what he said he would go from class to class give his speech or that he wanted to be class president and he would say oh by the way I'm gonna get vending machines on campus now I went to a school that didn't have vending machines and so this idea that he was going to give us a machine with accessible candy in it at any time was very exciting and alluring for us and so as you can imagine voting day comes we all vote he wins the election I bet he won in a landslide just because of that promise and then the school year goes by he graduates he goes to a different school and there was never a vending machine there dirty his name is Stonko. If, you're, if you listen to Stonko, that was messed up. And so he, it was enough to just promise that he would have vending machines that we, he got all our, our vote. Now, in his defense, he'll say years later, and this is true, years later, there was a vending machine on campus for like one month. And he claims that was him, but it wasn't him. He just feels bad about his empty promise he made to us. And and here's the thing about us kids. We had wants and desires for candy. And this older leader came along and he said, I can provide those wants and those desires that you have. I can give you what you want. That's all we needed was a promise that some leader could give us what we want. And I think us humans, us adults, we're not that different than kids, who are also humans, but we're not that different from kids. We have wants, we have desires, and often we are looking for a king or a leader or a president or a school president to give us our wants and our desires. And today we're starting a new series that's going to be mostly in the book of First and 2 Samuel and 1 Kings, but we're not going all the way through it. And the series is called, We Want a King. And in this series, here's what we're going to do. We are going to look at the rise and the fall of Israel's first three kings. First, King Saul. Then, King David. And then, third, King Solomon. And so, we're going to be in this series... Uh, all the way up until Advent, looking at these three kings. And as we go through this series that we're calling We Want a King series, we're going to see a bunch of things. We're going to explore the themes throughout, woven throughout First and 2 Samuel and 1 Kings. Themes of power and brokenness. Themes of national division and personal failure. And themes of cultivating our hearts after God. And what we're going to see in all three of these kings that the people of Israel wanted in different ways is that it reveals our desperate need for Jesus as king. And so that's the series that we're going to be uh, in. And this story, the story of these three kings, the rise and fall of these three kings, it starts with the people of God, with the Israelites, crying out, We want a king. And I think that's a cry a lot of our hearts make as well. So, here's what we're going to do today. We're going to be in First Samuel 8. We're going to go through the whole chapter of 1 Samuel 8 together. But before we get to 1 Samuel 8, I want to kind of set the stage and the context for us. So one of the things that we'll talk about is how do we read this Old Testament book of 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel? How do we read these books? Uh, Are there things we need to pay attention to? And then after that, I hope to kind of summarize the first seven chapters of 1 Samuel so we know where we're at in the story as we hop into 1 Samuel 8, and then after we go through 1 Samuel 8 together, there's kind of three things that I think we could learn, uh, two of them about ourselves and one of them about God, from 1 Samuel 8, okay? So that's what we're doing today, um, and and we're going to see what God speaks to us. So we are starting uh, an Old Testament book, and we've been in a New Testament letter the last few months, and so it's good for us, whenever we switch books of the Bible, to take a minute and go, How, what is the best way to read this book of the Bible? Uh, what can I know about this book of the Bible? And one of the keys, if you don't know this, in reading books of the Bible is knowing what kind of literature, what genre is that book of the Bible? And so we were just in Colossians. Colossians was a letter, or we call it an epistle a lot of times. It was a letter to a, a small local church. First Samuel is not a letter to a small local church. In biblical theology, when they kind of describe the genre of 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, which really was one book originally, but the scrolls were so long that they parsed them out into two books. Uh, when, when they wrote that book, or how theologians uh, kind of define that genre is they call it one of two things. They'll either call it biblical narrative or historical narrative. It's just two ways of saying the same thing. And so when we get into First and Second Samuel, as we're going to be through this series over the next few months, we have to know that's the genre that we're in. Because here's what can happen. Sometimes the way we read the Bible is we read every single book of the Bible exactly the same. And when we do that, we mishear God or we misapply things, or we misunderstand things, or things become that much more confusing. And so it's important for us to know that this uh, book of of the Bible that we're going to be spending a lot of time in, it's biblical narrative or historical narrative. That's the genre. And because that's the genre... That means we're going to read it a little bit differently than maybe how we read a typical New Testament book. We're going to read it a little bit differently, and how we hear from God will be a little bit different than how we hear from God in Colossians. And so I like how Eugene Peterson describes this book. He has a great commentary on First and 2 Samuel, and he kind of describes how we are to listen to God speak through First and 2 Samuel. It's a long quote, but I'm going to read the whole quote. Here's what he says to help us know what we're getting into in the coming months. He says this. For the biblical way is not so much to present us with a moral code and tell us, live up to this, nor is it to set out a system of doctrine and say, think like this and you will live well. The biblical way is to tell a story and invite us. Live into this. This is what it looks like to be human in this God-made and God-ruled world. This is what is involved in becoming and maturing as a human being. We do violence to the biblical revelation when we use it for what we can get out of it or what we think will provide color and spice to our otherwise bland lives. That results in a kind of boutique spirituality. God as decoration, God as enhancement. The Samuel narrative will not allow that. In the reading, as we submit our lives to what we read, we find that we are not being led to see God in our stories, but to see our stories in God's. God is the larger context and plot in which my story or our stories find themselves. So... As we read 1 Samuel together, as we're going through this We Want a King series, we have to keep some of those things in mind. God does this funny thing where he has worked in history, and a lot of times people treat 1 and 2 Samuel like, hey, this was part of Israel's history, and that's why it's in the Bible, but that's not quite why it's in the Bible, even though it is part of Israel's history. It's in the Bible because people, or one author in particular, came together and said, hey, They interpreted how God worked in history, and they wrote it down. That's why this is in the Bible. And so what we're going to be doing in 1 and 2 Samuel is really looking at God, looking for God. So as we read 1 and 2 Samuel, we are looking for God. We're looking for where he moves, what he does, who he is. So a lot of what we'll be doing is looking for God. And we're going to be looking at his story, and we're going to realize that our stories are really within his story. And so there's another thing that I think you can do when you read a book like 1 Samuel, is you can learn a lot about yourself. Old Testament narratives, historical narratives, biblical narratives, however you want to call it, they do a great job of showing us what it means to be human. They do a great job of showing us what we are at our core. And so not only will we learn a lot about God, but we will learn a lot about ourselves. Again, we will learn about ourselves in the context of God and who he himself is. Eugene Pearson, another shorter quote that I'll read, when he talks about this dynamic, he says this. In referring to 1 Samuel, he says, To be human means to deal with God, and that everything we encounter and experience birth and death, hunger and thirst, money and weapons, weather and mountains, friendship and betrayal, marriage and adultery is included. Every nuance and detail of it in dealing with God. And so we're entering a book that's historical narrative, and Samuel's going to tell a story of several kings. And in their stories, we're going to see how Samuel is really dealing with God's ultimate story, God's ultimate rescue plan, God's redemption plan. But even in the midst of that, we can learn things about ourselves, about human nature that's important for us in dealing with God ourselves. Okay, so that's kind of, that gives us some background for 1 Samuel. Let's just now hop into kind of, how does 1 Samuel start? We're starting in chapter 8. How do those first seven chapters of 1 Samuel start? It starts with a woman crying. She and her husband had traveled away from where they lived to Shiloh, where the house of the Lord was, or at least their expression of of the house of the Lord. It was probably that tent of meeting in Exodus, if you remember that story. And she's in the house of the Lord. They're there to worship God, and she is crying in the house of the Lord. And she's crying so hard and she's praying to God and she's crying because she is barren. She's without, she can't have children. She can't get pregnant. And if you know anything about that time of day, you know that a child being able to have a child, that was your hope. That was your future. That was your retirement plan. You simply could not survive in that day and age if you didn't have a child. Uh, so, more context to her story is she lives in a tumultuous time in Israel's history. Samuel starts right after the book of Judges. I encourage you to go read the book of Judges to know kind of the context in which Hannah, this woman who's crying in the story, where she is. Israel's culture is a mess. They are super sinful, and they're doing whatever they want, whatever seems right in their eyes. The, the nation of Israel is a mess because different countries are coming in, attacking them at different times, controlling them at different times, just really dominating Israel in all sorts of ways. And then we find Hannah in the house of the Lord praying, Lord, would you give me a child? Would you, help, would you make it so I'm not barren? And, and then she makes this promise to the Lord. She says, Lord, if you give me a child, what I'm going to do is I'm going to dedicate that child to you. I'm going to bring him back to this house of the Lord. and I'm going to have him work here in this house of the Lord, grow up here as a priest, as one of your priests, God. If you would just give me a child. Well, God hears Hannah's cries and he, uh, he heals her so that she can have a child, and she has this baby named Samuel. And then in 1 Samuel chapter 2, Hannah, in joy, because of God's goodness to her, sings this song. And now I'm going to give you a hint. If you ever open up a book of the Bible, and one of the lead characters starts off singing a song, you should pay attention to that song, because that song is going to really kind of help us see some of the themes and things that are going to go on throughout the rest of this book. And so she sings this beautiful song. And in this song, there's all these beautiful ideas that I think are a preview of what we're going to see in 1 and 2 Samuel. She talks about a God who opposes the proud and lifts up the humble. She talks about how even though humans do evil and hurt people with their evil and sin, that God is still working throughout history. That he's even working out his purposes in history. That... that God who had been so good to her, he is the sort of God that cares for the poor and the vulnerable, that even rescues the poor and the vulnerable and fights on their behalf. In this song, she talks about how God himself will defeat the powerful oppressors one day. And then the end of the song, it ends with this line that kind of says that God is going to raise up a king who's going to be anointed to do the work of God in judging and taking care of evil. And so uh, that's the song we get, and I think that's a great preview to what we're going to see in a lot of First and Second Samuel. And so she has Samuel, and so she gets Samuel to the age where he's uh, potty trained and sends him off to a really weaned is what the Bible says, but, and, and then brings him to the house of the Lord, which was run by this priest named Eli, and she says, hey, I, I, I made this promise to God. Here's my son for the house of the Lord. And Samuel begins to grow up in the house of the Lord, and her, uh, parents, or his parents would visit every so often, and he lives under this priest named Eli. And Eli, he's an undisciplined priest, he's not that good of a priest, he's not that great of a priest, in fact, he's got two sons, and they're priests, uh, and they're just the worst, they're evil, they're doing all sorts of evil things. And eventually what God does with Eli and his two sons is he removes them. And he removes them by uh, way of death. And so he removes Eli and his two evil sons from the priesthood. And as that's happening, Samuel's growing up. He's growing in favor in the Lord. God's speaking to him. God's using him and, and growing him. And really God himself is discipling Samuel. And Samuel grows up and he becomes the priest of the house of the Lord. And Samuel is the kind of priest you are proud to say he's your priest He's the kind of priest that does right by the Lord He's the kind of priest that loves the Lord He's the kind of priest that obeys the Lord he, he is such a good priest That he actually even becomes like a judge over Israel So what this means If you read the book of Judges Judges were people that helped kind of rule Israel in a sense And especially helped save them And protect them from enemy forces And So he becomes a judge Not only is Samuel a judge But it refers to him as a prophet So Samuel is also someone that speaks the very words of God to God's people. And so the first seven chapters cover a bunch, a handful of stories, but by the time we get to chapter 8, Samuel has grown up, he has been a very good priest, and he's old. He has sons of his own at this point, and that's where our story picks up. And so we're going to be in 1 Samuel 8. We're going to read the first nine verses. They should be on the screen. Follow Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you. For they've not rejected you, but they've rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. Okay, so Samuel gets old. He he appoints his sons just like Eli did. And Samuel's sons aren't great either. And the people of God, they've seen this story before. So they come to Samuel and say, listen, Samuel, you've been great. Your sons, though, if they're going to take over for you, we're not looking forward to it. So here's what we want, Samuel. Could you give us a king? All the nations around us, they all have a king. It seems great. Give us a king like all the nations around us. Now Samuel's a good leader, and like a lot of good leaders, his feelings are a little bit hurt at this request. And so he goes to the Lord and brings his hurt feelings to the Lord and says, Lord, this seems wrong to me. This doesn't seem right to me. And they're rejecting me. And and God goes, yeah, yeah, they are rejecting you, but they're ultimately, Samuel, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. They're rejecting me as king. That's what's going on here, Samuel. Sure, they're, they're rejecting you in some sense, but they're rejecting trusting in me as their king. So here's what I want you to do. Listen to them. Give them the king that they want. Not what you expect God to, to say, in this moment. He goes, listen to them. Give them the king that they want, but warn them. Warn them about what comes with a king. Warn them what comes with a king like all the other nations. Tell them what's going to happen. And so Samuel, in the next few verses that we're going to kind of pass over because I'll just summarize for us, but Samuel goes back to the elders of Israel. He says, okay, you want a king? Here's what a king involves, taxes. Do you want taxes? You don't even know taxes. We don't have a word for it in Hebrew. There's going to be taxes, there's going to be taxes. He's going to take your sons for war. He's going to take the best workers for himself. He's going to take the best land for himself. And everybody's going to be his slave in some sense. And he's also going to have literal slaves. That is, that is made up of us. Sounds awesome? And then we kind of see the result. Like this is Samuel's warning to the people. And then this is how they react in verse 19. They say this in verse 19, as Samuel just gave that warning. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, but there shall be a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, go every man to his city. So what happens is Samuel warns them about all the things that will come with a king. And they just go, we don't care. We've got a king. Like if we have a king, that guy will be able to give us what we want, give us what we desire. He'll be able to judge us like the other nations are judged. He'll be able to protect us and go out before us. We want that king. Give us that king, Samuel. Please, get the Lord to do it for us. And the Lord, and Samuel goes back to the Lord, and the Lord says, give them, give them what they want. They want a king, they're crying out that they want a king. Give them a king. And this chapter, it really sets up where we're going for the coming months or in the coming months with this series, We Want a King. But today, from this chapter in Samuel, what is what is God's story telling us? What, what can we learn from God? What can we learn about ourselves? I, I would say that there's two things here that the people of Israel show us about human nature, which means it's true about us, that we should listen to. And there's one thing about God and who he is and what he does that's important for us to pay attention to, okay? So three things. The first thing that we can learn from this text is this. That the people of Israel teach us that we all really want to be ruled like those around us are being ruled. We all want a king like the nations. Right? We all want a king like the nation. There is something in our hearts that sees how people around us are being ruled, and we want to be ruled how they are ruled. To kind of oversimplify it and, and bring it to more of an uh, individual day-to-day level, uh, we, we kind of got two options in life. And again, I'm oversimplifying. You could live under God's rule, or you could live under the same sort of rulers that everybody around us has. And again, I don't mean necessarily literal rulers, we all choose different things to rule our lives. And it's hard for us as Christians to not look out at our friends or not look out on social media and see how our friends are ruled and not desire to be ruled in those same ways. If we're going to be honest, can we just be honest about this? Having got the God of the universe as our king and ruler over our lives, Christians? It, it, it's like confusing, and uh, he's like a confusing ruler almost, to our natural sensibilities, to our fleshliness. But then we look out at our friends and we go, man, they've got things ruling them that just, it seems like those things make them happier. We look at our friends and we say, man, I want a life like their life. I want to be able to be under the rule of like autonomy and freedom. I think their life will make me happier. What the people of Israel show us in 1 Samuel 8 is all of us have that desire in our heart. We all have that draw. We all, want to, we all want a king. We all want a ruler like those around us. It would be much better. Israel's God for Israel in their day, he was a God unlike any of the surrounding nations' gods. And so the nations were ruled very differently than how Israel was ruled. But they saw their kings, and their kings became what the Israelites wanted. You and I, if you follow Jesus in here, you and I have the same God that Israel had. Which means in just our normal day-to-day life, our lives ruled by God who is king looks very different than the average person around us. And because of that, we yearn for their kings instead of our king. Our hearts are easily enticed into thinking the things that rule our friends will make us happier and give us more. When in reality, those things tax and enslave our souls. I'm not saying there's not good in the world around us. There's lots of good. That's why sometimes those kings and rulers are so compelling to us. I would just say those are good things under our good king. And I think our hearts—they just—they want to—they would rather just not be ruled by God. We would rather be ruled by a king like the nations around us, like the people around us—a king that's more acceptable in our friends' eyes, a king that's more acceptable in our eyes. If we're going to be honest, a king that can give us what our friends have when our king seems to be withholding at times. I think what uh, we need to see about the people of God in First Samuel eight is that our hearts are easily. Uh, like spiritually peer pressured by the nations around us. I don't mean literal nations. I just mean everybody that's ruled differently. Our hearts are spiritually peer pressured and we want a king like they have. We want a ruler like they have and we desire that sort of king. And I think when we notice that in ourselves, what we should do is put that desire away or turn from that desire and turn to King Jesus. And and find a way to say, okay, King Jesus, are you the king that I need? Are you the king I want? Are you the king that I really desire? We have to see that in ourselves, we have a propensity to yearn for a non-God king over our lives. Notice that in yourselves, church. Guard your heart against it. Okay? Okay, the second thing that I think we can pull from this passage is this it's, it's kind of similar to the first point but it's a little bit different it's this we would rather trust a king than trust god if we're going to look ourselves in the mirror and be honest with ourselves and see what we're seeing in first samuel 8 we would rather trust a king of some sort than trust god like a life with god as king is a life trusting him and his ways and that's hard for a variety of reasons, and because that's hard for a variety of re- reasons, we, mu- we much rather would trust some earthly king to give us what we want or desire. Sometimes, the, like the king that we'd rather trust than God is a literal king of some sort, like a president or a political figure or a school president. Sometimes the king we'd rather trust than God is, it, is an idea or a rule of life. An idea like freedom or autonomy or, hey, let me do what I want as long as it doesn't hurt anybody. We'd rather that rule us than God. Or uh, sometimes the the king that we let rule over our our life is really uh, something that we think or a person we think can give us our deepest desires and longings. Maybe it's a romantic partner that we are convinced can love us perfectly and esteem us and affirm us in all the ways we want to be loved, esteemed, and affirmed. Sometimes the king we want is just something that makes us feel secure. So that could be money. That could be a dream job. That could be your dream house in the dream city. It could be a retirement plan. Sometimes the king that we want and let rule over us is the king that makes us feel most secure. What we have to see about 1 Samuel 8 is our heart's propensity and desire to rather trust in one of those sorts of kings than ra- rather than trust in God as king. That's in us. That's in our hearts. We have to see that in us. In fact, I think it's so bad. Sometimes we are content not just to be ruled by just one of those kings like money or a romantic partner or a political figure. We are content to simply be ruled by the pursuit of those things. Like we don't even have those things. We just want to try to get them. And so we let our lives be ruled by the pursuit of those th- things. We would rather the pursuit rule us than God at times. We have to notice this in us. I think in First Samuel, what we see is that we would rather trust a king than trust God. The reality is you, you and I were made to trust God. And in fact, God is on a rescue mission right now to make it so that we could trust him perfectly and wholly and totally again. But in the meantime, church, we should look at 1 Samuel 8 and we should heed the warning that Samuel gives the Israelites He says, although the king that you want to trust might seem better, there's all sorts of ways that that king is going to hurt you in the end. Trust God instead. Samuel shows us that our lives are really a practice in trusting God over and over again. Our lives are a practice in trusting God. It's not... Uh, well, it is part of our sinful nature to want to trust something else than God, but we can turn to it and we can make a practice of trusting God instead. We should notice in us that we'd all much rather trust someone or something else as king besides God. I think it's good for us to be honest with ourselves. I think a lot of the problems in humanity and in Christians in particular is we're not honest with ourselves. Be honest with those desires in you and begin to place them where they should go. You were made to trust in God. Not in some weak king. All right, the last thing uh, that I think we can pull from this text is about kind of how God works in the world sometimes. And it's this. God sometimes gives us the king we want. Even when we're wrong, sometimes God gives us the king that we want. Here's what I know about God. He's not as heavy-handed as a lot of us think he is. God is a lot more like the father in the prodigal son story in Luke 15 than we would like to admit at times. A lot of us think God is a lot more like our legalistic fathers that a lot of us grew up with, but God is not quite like that. He's much more like the father of the prodigal son that we see in Luke 15. And so this is what happens. Sometimes what happens is all of us want a king of some sort to rule our life, and our hearts cry out for it. And then God, because he loves us as his children, he will warn us about what that king will eventually give us. We then will I still want the king. I still want the candy. I don't care about the cavities. And so then God will let us have that king over our life. And often that king comes with many consequences. And what I want us to see here is that is true for a lot of us. A lot of us cry out for a king of some sort. God warns us about that king. We still want the king, and so God lets that king rule over us. And then we're surprised when that king fails us. Right? Maybe, maybe money is your king. The consequences with having money as a king will become, um, you're, you're just never going to be satisfied. You're never going to be satisfied and you're going to have a lot of anxiety. Maybe that's not your king. Uh, maybe beauty is your king. Maybe you really care about being beautiful and looking good. I, I would just say have fun dying a million deaths as you look in the mirror at your deteriorating face. When beauty's your king, that's what, that's what it leads to. I wish I could tell you that's not going to happen to you. No, you'll be beautiful till you're 99. No, you're going to look scary at some point. <laughs> In God's eyes, you'll be beautiful. <laughs> not mine. Um, <laughs> when beauty is your king, you die a million deaths internally because that king won't satisfy you. It won't actually give you what you want. Maybe power is your king. Here's what I know about power. God humbles the powerful time and time and time and time and time again. So if power is your king, God will humble you. Maybe chasing the love of the culture around you is your king. The love of of the world is your king. He'll let that be your king, and he'll let it love you and rule you imperfectly. And you always feel dissatisfied, dissatisfied by the love the world around you can give you. Maybe feeling good or pleasure is your king. You're like, I just want to feel good. I just want pleasure. Like, That's my king. That's what I'm going to chase after. This is what's going to happen. You're going to become a weak person. As someone who I think chases pleasure too often, it makes me weak when I let that king rule me. I become a weak person. Maybe romance is your king. I'll tell you this, God's not going to bless the broken road. <laughs> like you're going you're to go through a string of broken relationships. Maybe not always, but if romance is your king, you're never going to be satisfied. Even if you found the perfect person for you, if love is your king, romance is your king, that perfect person will never romance you enough to make you feel significant and loved. Maybe you, maybe you want a literal king. There's a political figure of some sort that you want as king, and that's what you make your king. Here's what God will do. He'll let that person become the king you hope in, and then what's going to happen is you're going to die either making the world a worse place, or you'll die without hope for this world. You'll die going, this world is deteriorating massively. That's what happens when you make a political leader of some sort your king. He, he or she is a weak king. God sometimes will give you over to the king that you cry out for. We see that in 1 Samuel 8. Even though that might not have been what was right for them, it seems. That really God as king is what was right for them. God listened to their cry and said, I'm going to give you over to that king. Sometimes I think how we walk out our faith is is kind of funny. We kind of... uh, let all of these kings take us over and then we're surprised that, that like, things are happening to us that weaken us or hurt us. I, I heard one author, she kind of put it this way when talking about this scenario in 1 Samuel 8. She says, uh, it's kind of like sometimes like uh, we want to play dangerous sports, but then what we also want is God to protect us in dangerous sports, and then we play dangerous sports and we get a concussion and we're surprised. Sometimes the kings we pick as Christians, do the same thing to us. God goes, okay, you can, you can have it, but it's going to lead to concussion. Sometimes God gives us over to the kings we want and the consequences that come with them. We all want a king. The, Israels did too, the Israelites did too. We, in here, individually, all want a king of some sort. We want a king like our friends have, We want a king to trust in. We want a king to give us what we want. And in different moments, God gives us over those kings. But here's the good news of the gospel. God was not content in just giving us over to the king that we want. God was not content with that. And so what God eventually did is he gave us the king that we need. He sent his son, King Jesus, to us. So he was not content in just giving us over to the king we want. He decided to give us the king that we need and display his son as the most significant figure in all of human history. And he said, this is the king. This is the actual anointed one. This is the one you need to turn to. This is the one you need to trust to. This is the one who who can give you what you actually want. God was not content to just give us over to the kings that destroy us and hurt us and wreck us. So he sent his son, Jesus, to be king over all of creation. Jesus is our king. Jesus is who we desire. And so as we go through 1 Samuel 8 and we see that we would want a king like the friends around us, look to Jesus. See that king, see, ask yourself the question, is King Jesus worse than their king? And the moments even when your heart says yes, find some good friends around you that will show you the truth, that he's far better. When you'd rather trust in different things or different kings that aren't King Jesus, look to the gospels, read the gospels, see the sort of King Jesus is and see how he is far more worthy of your trust than some minute thing. Jesus is the king God wants to give us. Jesus is the king that we need. Friends, when our hearts do end up looking to to trust some other king, see how Jesus is far stronger than that weak king you're turning to. See how Jesus is the king strong enough to allow death to befall him, and that is the very way he defeats death. That's how strong our king is. He can use death of himself to defeat death for all. When it seems like, uh, friends, when it seems like the consequences of of your various loyalties to non-God kings are catching up to you, and you feel like you're too far gone, remember that the resurrected, real King Jesus lives, and he has his arms open, just like that prodigal father, saying, I'm the king you want, I'm the king you need, come back. We're never too far gone to run to King Jesus' arms. Church, we all desire a king. We all want a king. The desire itself is not bad. I think it's even maybe naturally human. But where we place that desire is of crucial importance. What we see in the book of Samuel, in 1 Samuel 8, is that when we place our desire in a weak king, there's all sorts of trouble that's going to come with it. So God gave us a strong king who who will take away all the trouble one day. So church, may we rightly place our desire for a king in King Jesus. Amen, church? Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you for your son, King Jesus. Thank you for this book of 1 Samuel that you can use to teach us about yourself, teach us about ourselves. God, I think probably some of us might be feeling in here like, okay, that's true about my heart. What do I do? And God, that's kind of just how we feel. What do we do? Change our hearts, God. Could you give us the ability to turn to you the way we need to? Would you do all the work, God, in us so that we can? God, give us a vision for you as a better king. I wonder if there's some in here too, God, that are going, okay, Jesus really is better. God, help us to see that you really are better. Help us to be reminded of that. Help us to be a people that remind each other of how great you are as king. God, we love you and we need you. And though our hearts cry out, we want a king, God, let us make you king over our lives. Really, God, help us to see you've already made yourself king over our lives. We love you, Lord, and we need you. Holy Spirit, please do work in these moments of reflection. Amen.